Good morning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to the book of 1 Samuel, and you can open up there to the 8th chapter of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8, as we continue our trek through the Old Testament together on a high-level view of it. I'm going to go ahead and open us up in a word of prayer. Usually I like to read a text, but you're going to see this is going to cover most of 1 Samuel and parts of 2 Samuel. I think it probably benefit us if I don't read all of that text first. Um, that takes about three hours. Um, so I'd only plan the sermon to be six, so I don't want to take half the time. So let me pray for us. <clears throat> Father, we do want to ask Your help, and I in particular now want to ask Your help is as we look at the awesome task of looking at Your Word, Father, we believe deeply um, in in what preaching does. We believe in it as a gift, Lord, um, from You to the congregation. But Lord, that has nothing to do with the preacher. We believe all those things because we believe in Your Word. And so, Father, I pray this morning that that Your Word would go forth. I pray, God, that You would give me uh, a help to be clear with Your Word. I pray, God, for these listeners, God, that You would help them to listen well to Your Word. And Lord, we trust that You, Lord, will operate all these things by Your Spirit. Father, I pray that we would leave together heralding how great of a God it is that we serve. Lord, that that this calls us to be attentive to Your Word, that this calls us to a life of repentance. And this embarks us, Lord, to uh, come before You and, and enjoy Your love. So, Father, we pray that that, that, would, that would be our heart and our mind this morning. We ask all these things to You, Father, through the strong name of Christ. Jesus, our Lord and our Savior, and Lord, we pray that You now would apply these things by Your Spirit. Amen. Um, the Greek uh, philosopher Plato, uh, probably his most famous work, I'm going to guess, is The Republic, uh, and, uh, and an outstanding work it is, and I'm sure many of you have uh, had the opportunity to read Plato's Republic. And in The Republic, uh, there's a couple interesting things, but what Plato's after there is he's after the question, what is it for something to be just? And he's going to basically answer the question with, well, it just means basically that's rightly ordered. If something's just, then it, it's, it's rightly ordered. But one of the things I appreciate about what Plato does there is he draws a comparison. He says, if you can understand what it is for justice, uh, for something to be just on a national level, then you can understand what it is for something to be just on an individual level. Or another way to put it, if, if we understand what it means to have a rightly ordered nation, you can also understand that same concept of a rightly ordered soul. And in a weird way, I kept coming back to that as I was reading through 1 Samuel, that that seems to be what's up here. We get a big picture of where the nation is by looking at certain individuals. Uh, they serve as examples. And in particular, we're allowed to see a uh, through the narrow angle lens of two kings, the first two kings of Israel, uh, a, a big picture lens of what it is that God is calling the nation to be, and also 
who it is that the nation is. So we've walked through together, through the history of Israel. We've, we've watched them go down into Egypt. We watched them come out. We've watched God give them the Ten Commandments. We watched uh, as He gave them the structure of the tabernacle. We watched as He gave them the idea of the priesthood, the Ark of the Covenant, the whole entire structure of the priesthood uh, in the Levitical system and the sacrificial system. We watched uh, as they lingered for 40 years in the wilderness. And we watched as their leader Moses walked up on a mountain all alone to die. We rejoiced with Joshua as he led the people out of the wilderness and into the promised land. And more recently, we observed that, that they were led uh, by a series of judges, each raised up for a, a temporary time for a particular section of the nation, and, and that they offered leadership. And we've witnessed they're consistent, the Israelites consistent, repetitive disobedience as they stubbornly reject God's rule and commands. And a few weeks ago, Brother Mark walked us through the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel and he showed us that the text represented uh, just how desperate of a situation the nation was in. As Mark showed us last time in the book of Samuel, it opens up with the desperate condition of a barren woman. Hannah. Hannah crying out to God. And in Hannah, we witness the spiritual apathy of the land. As Eli, who's the priest, who's so unfamiliar with desperate prayer that he mistakens it for inebriated state. They're a desperate nation. Hannah typifies, she serves as a picture of the rest of the nation. Hopeless. Anxious, powerless, and desperate. And we know this to be the case because when God answers Hannah's prayer for a son, she simultaneously answers the prayer of the whole nation in giving them the great leader in Samuel. Samuel, uh, whose name means God has heard. He will serve as Israel's final judge and he is an amazing leader. In fact, in, uh, the remarkability of Samuel can be seen in his final farewell address there in 1 Samuel chapter 12. In one sentence, it suffices to demonstrate how exceptional he was as a leader. Listen to this sentence. 1 Samuel chapter 12, it says, As for me, far be it from me, that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. That is Samuel. What an amazing statement. Not only does Samuel see his need as a leader to pray for his people, but he sees, he goes so far as to say, if I fail to do so, I've actually sinned. <laughs> wow. Moreover, he sees his other main duty is to instruct the people in the Word of God. I'm telling you, that one sentence this week has, has fallen on me and convicted me much as a pastor. I'm reminded that this aptly describes the main two duties of any pastor. It's right there in that sentence. You pray for the flock and you teach them the Word of God. And when you think about it, it humbles you as a pastor because you realize 
it's basically saying you have nothing to offer the people of God. You have nothing to offer them. Think about what it's saying. You basically bring the people to God through prayer and bring God to the people through teaching of the Word. That's all you're there for is to bring the people to God and bring God to the people. You yourself just get out of the way. Unfortunately, the people did not feel the same way that Samuel did. <laughs> uh, far from it. Uh, and in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8, I mean, sorry, in the chapter, in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, everything takes a turn. And literally, the entire history of uh, Israel takes a major turn with this chapter, um, chapter 8. Let's follow along in First uh, Samuel chapter 8, look at verse 4. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your Ways. Don't have time to pursue this. One of the interesting things about uh, the book of Samuel is, uh, uh, 1 Samuel is, if you look that Samuel's this incredibly godly leader and his sons are not, and then you compare it to what Saul is, and then we get the incredible, incredible godly son that he has in Jonathan. There's something to be said there, but I don't have time for it, so that's all I will say. How about not saying anything? All right. Um, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And this is Samuel's fashion. What does Samuel do? He goes to the Lord and he prays. People come to Samuel and ask for a king. They want a king like all the other nations. Now remember... What was supposed to be so special about Israel? That they are not like all the other nations. And they say, we want a king like all the other nations. It upset Samuel as they, they rejecting, they're rejecting his leadership, but they're also, more importantly, rejecting the leadership of God. And as Samuel's inclined to do, he goes to the Lord in prayer and he pleads this before the Lord and listen to the Lord's reply in verse 7. Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being the king over them. Verse 8, According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they also are doing to you. God tells Samuel not to be offended at them rejecting him, because more than they're rejecting him, they're rejecting God. So this God says to Samuel, look, don't get your feelings hurt. This is par for the course. They've rejected me for centuries now. Literally centuries now. They started rejecting me the moment I saved them out of Egypt and they continue to reject me. And then, listen to God's response. They ask for a king. God says it's a really bad idea. Now listen to his response. Verse 9. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. Go, give them a king. Tell them. Tell them what it will be like. 
but give him a king. I tell you, there's a lot to learn here. I'm still young in my years of faith, but I've lived long enough to know that one of the ways that God will discipline us as His people is to answer our mistaken prayers. That is, sometimes the things we ask for in prayer reveal the shallowness and the trivial state of our hearts. And God often disciplines us by giving us the very thing we've asked for. Now, any parent knows this method of teaching. It's one you actually use quite often. Yes, I do want to walk with my shoes tied together. Okay? Have at it. Stay away from the stairs, but have at it, right? Um, until not long later, they come back and say, I don't want my shoes tied together, right? Um, in other words, that's what you think you want? Have it. So you'll learn that's not what you want. Guess what? God does this in prayer for us a lot. He disciplines us quite often by actually answering our mistaken prayers. And that's exactly what God has done to the nation. The Bible repeatedly makes the point that we are stubborn and ignorant. But I'm going to tell you what, this passage we're getting ready to read together, I don't know if it gets any clearer than this about the level of our stubbornness and ignorance. Samuel goes to the people. Now just listen to this. Just listen to it. Verse 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking them for a king. So that includes give them what they want, but tell them that it's a bad idea. God told me to give you what you want, but He said make sure I tell you it's a bad idea. So here's why it's a bad idea. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will rule over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and equipment of chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you'll cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Verse 19. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may also be like all the other nations and our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Oh my. Summary. If you go down this road, your sons and your daughters will be taken from you. You will lose your horses and chariots. You will pay high taxes. You'll lose parts of your land and many of you will become slaves. And the response of the people is, that sounds good. We'd like one of those. <laughs> that is supposed to be ironic as you're reading through the text. No way. Yes, it just happened. Folks, we can relate to this, can't we? We know what it means to have fickle hearts. 
We learn to understand that oftentimes God not giving us what we ask for in prayer is His great mercy towards us. He knows what we need. He also knows our fickle hearts. He's often gracious enough to deny our request. And at other times, He cares enough to discipline us by answering our prayers. God answers the prayers of the Israelites by giving them a king. And the books of First and Second Samuel focus on two of these first two kings, Saul and David. Now, the book of First Samuel in particular is intent to offer us a comparison between these two men. As you read through First and Samuel, First uh, and Second Samuel, I, the comparison is unbelievable. It's intentional to try to compare Saul and David. A godly life, a rightly ordered life, to a selfish, sinful life. And as a result, I hope you're going to see things that you can learn as an individual, but things we can also learn as a, as a body, as a church, about what does it mean to have a rightly ordered soul, a godly life. And I think we can see at least four main points of comparison between Saul and David as we walk through 1 Samuel together this morning. First point is a belief in a gigantic God. A belief in a gigantic God. Well, the first king that they get, his name is Saul. Ironically, here's what his name means in the Hebrew. You ask for it. Something like that. That's what it means if you translate. You asked. I love it. Samuel's name means one given by God. Saul's name is you asked. (laughs) On the other hand, David's name means beloved one. One who's loved. It's so fitting. Saul certainly looked the part. Chapter 9 of, uh, uh, tells us that there was not a man among the people who's more handsome or taller than Saul. That's not a small deal. I remember uh, reading in a uh, biography about George Washington how his stature was such a big deal for his success. The man was a tall man, and in particular, he looked really good on a horse. And we think that's a small thing, but let me tell you, there are many folks who say there's no way George Washington would have been the first president of the United States if he didn't look so good on a horse. And there's a lot of folks who go so far as to say, had George Washington not looked that good on a horse, there's no way the rebel army would have been as courageous as they were. He made them think things about themselves that they should not have thought. So also is Saul. David apparently um, was not nearly as impressive, although it does say multiple times that he was quite handsome. We think this because God tells Samuel in the process of looking for David. You remember he gets to Eliab, his brother, and he says, oh no, because Samuel's impressed how tall Eliab is. And he, and he says, he says, remember, God does not look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. Saul was consistently trying to bring God down to his size. As someone he could force or manipulate or manage. He did not fear God because he saw God as yet another person like himself. Somebody else he could possibly impress. In chapter 13, he sees no problem whatsoever with moving forward with sacrifice that he had no authorization to do. 
In chapter 14, he makes a rash vow and he makes his men fast before war in some attempt to impress God for God's favor, even though God asked nothing of the sort. In chapter 15, God commands him to do one thing. And he decides he can impress God by modifying that command. And in chapter 17, when the Philistine giant marches up against the people of Israel, what does Saul do? He sits back in fear. Saul could not see God as any bigger than himself. And given his inability to see the immensity of God and His power, he was prone to self-reliance and prone to jealousy. Saul was impressed by Saul. He relied upon his own strength, his own power in his control, and he saw God as one of the powers he could control. And then there's David. David, on the other hand, was enamored by the strength of God. He was in awe of God and he deeply trusted in Him. In in 2 Samuel chapter 22, when, when David's given his farewell address, he says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. And the Psalms are full, chock full of this language that David uses about God. There's probably no better example of this than chapter 17 of 1 Samuel when young David asked for the opportunity to go up against Goliath. The text is careful, very careful, to paint David as fully aware of the enormity of the task ahead of him, but also fully convinced that Goliath does not stand a chance. So David marches out to fight Goliath with a slingshot. Slingshots are not accurate. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows it, including David. In fact, the Bible records we have David in lots of other battles. We have David in more battles than any other person in the Bible. And you know what? He never again takes a slingshot with him. If he's so good with a slingshot, why would he not take it to every other battle? Because he knows it's a ridiculous notion. You get the feeling that David was so convinced that God was going to knock down Goliath that he would have marched out with a pillow and a zucchini. He was convinced that God fought for him. And therefore, Goliath didn't stand a chance. And so we get these incredible verses in 1 Samuel 17, 45 and 46. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword? And with a spear and with a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I'll cut off your head. I've always laughed about that. He had a slingshot. How's he going to cut his head off? I'm telling you, he saw something nobody else saw. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. God was massive to David. Therefore, he felt no pressure to be impressive or great. In 2 Samuel 5, David 
defeats the Philistines yet again. He does this many times in his life. And he says this when he finishes, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. He he actually had them name the place Baal Perizim, which means the Lord who burst through. Friend, how big is the God you serve? We live in a day and an age where churches teach a small God who is no bigger than ointment to rub on your current problems. If you can refer to your God as the man upstairs, then you serve a different God than the God of the Bible. Your God is a wimp, left over, has been, who was created by decades of liberal theology, and He is foreign to the biblical text. He lacks our God. The God of the Bible is a massive God. He lacks no power and He knows all things. His people fear Him. They stand in awe of Him. He's not their Santa Claus waiting to get their wish list. He's not some lonely old man hoping somebody shows up to give Him some attention. He is the supreme being of the universe. And from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be glory forever. He is a gigantic God. Point two. Full obedience to the Word of God. A gigantic God. Full obedience to the Word of God. God rejects Saul and his dynasty. Only three chapters. Only three chapters after he is crowned king. And you kind of think to yourself, well, what heinous crime does he commit three chapters in to have the whole kingdom just gone and the whole dynasty gone? Chapter 13, he was supposed to wait for Samuel to give a sacrifice. The people started to scatter. Saul felt nervous, didn't know how to deal with the situation. So he goes ahead and he proceeds without him. Samuel arrives and offers this declaration. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 13 and 14. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which He commanded you. For then the Lord, who you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom in Israel, uh, over Israel forever. Found that so interesting, but not going to pursue it. Alright. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Shortly after the inception of his rule, God puts an end to the dynasty. And tells him he's already picked out his replacement. All because Saul offered a sacrifice prematurely. Because he did not fully obey the Word of God. In chapter 15, God is so angry with Saul that he actually says, I regret I ever let him be king. Well, what brought this on? Well, God tells him to go take out the Amalekites and be sure to destroy all of them. Men, women, children, livestock, everything's got to go. Saul leads the Israelites to battle and defeats the Amalekites, but he spares King Agag and some of the livestock, which he says he's going to sacrifice. And and then you get this encounter 
between Samuel and Saul yet again. Samuel came to Saul. Saul starts with Samuel. Blessed be to you the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And this great line, one of the greatest lines in all of Scripture, Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? I'm pretty sure he said wipe out all the livestock. Either a lot of people sound like animals or there's some livestock present. Saul said, well, they brought them from the Amalekites. Who, who brought them? They brought them. The people brought them. For the people spared the best of the sheep or the oxen to sacrifice the Lord God. And the rest, we, we've devoted the rest to destruction. Samuel continues in verse 19. Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And then we get this. Verse 22. Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and in sacrifices as He does in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. We read that this morning together. The author of Hebrews repeats that. The psalmist repeats that. Why is God so angry with Saul? Because he did not fully obey the word of God. God spoke and Saul heard what he said. But Saul encountered circumstances that felt a bit awkward and he decided to listen to part of what God said, but he did not listen to all of what God said. Exactly the same thing he did in chapter 13. We're fortunate enough to actually have the notes that John Wesley wrote in his Bible. Um, and when he gets to chapter 13, uh, and he deals with what happened there and, and him having the whole kingdom taken away from him because of not fully obeying the Lord, he, he writes something out in the uh, margin of this. Uh, is Chad not in here to hear? A, I'm, I'm John Wesley is a, a Methodist founder. Um, I, gonna, I, I don't get often I can quote Methodist and here, my goodness. All right, well, you all have it on record that we're quoting a Methodist this morning. Even though John Wesley didn't definitely know what a Methodist was. But anyway, we'll keep going. All right. Um, he writes this. And indeed, there is no little sin because there is no little God to sin against. Oh. So in other words, you can tell Wesley's marching through this and he goes, I mean, really all he did is not wait. That seems like a little sin. It troubled Wesley. And he had to deal with it. He had to reconcile it. And how did Wesley reconcile that? He said, well, there can't be a little sin because there's no little God to sin against. The words of a small God, those can be partially obeyed. The one would be foolish to disobey the words of a gigantic God. But Saul's God wasn't a gigantic God. But David's was. David spent ten years on the run from Saul. I just think about that. Ten years. He didn't have a home for ten years because Saul was jealous and obsessed with one thing. 
kill David. David had the opportunity to kill Saul. And finally, he could just put an end to it and put an end to the chase. I just cannot imagine how hard this would have been. He had every right to just end it for Saul. In chapter 14, David tells his men, don't you lay a hand on him. Listen to why. Chapter 24, he says, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. God had spoken, and he had named Saul king. And that's all David needed to hear to not lay a hand on the man. In fact, you might remember that 1 Samuel closes with Saul dying. He, he dies uh, be, by taking his own life as he realized he was going to have his life taken. And, and actually, 2 Samuel opens up with an Amalekite soldier running to David and falsely claiming that he had actually mercifully ended Saul's life for him. Saw him dying and he comes up with this lie that, you know, he begged me to take his life and, and I, I, I was merciful to do that, thinking he was going to impress David. Wrong move. Right? You remember what David says? He says, how is it you were not afraid to... Oh, first of all, you got to... it's one of the things I love about how the text presents this. David takes a break. <laughs> he hears it. He hears the news that Saul's dead and he weeps and weeps and weeps and weeps. And then he comes back. You know, the guy's thinking, oh man, he is really upset about this. I've probably done really well. And this is what I love. David then comes back and says, I, 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 I got a problem here. How is it you are not afraid to put your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? David called one of the young men and said, you go execute him. And the man struck him down so that he died. It was an egregious an egregious act in David's eyes that this man thought he could touch one upon whom the Word of God had anointed. The Word of God was precious to David. Psalm 19, he says, it's more desirable than gold. He says, it's as sweet as honey to me. If we believe in a gigantic God, we will treasure His revealed Word. We'll take it at face value. We won't mock it by acting as if we are above it and more educated than it, that we've moved past it. We will not make it say any more than it says, but we will be sure that it says no less than what it says. This is a huge deal for every soul in this room right this moment, not just your pastors. It's a huge deal for you. You have got to settle the question in your mind. Is it the Word of God? And is all of it the Word of God? You've got to settle that. I remember in my life coming to that point of having to settle it. And everything changed. It completely took choices off the table. I have no choice now but to reconcile my life with the Word of God. I don't have an option. You've got to make that choice. David loved the Word of God because God was gigantic to him. Saul, you can do some of it. You don't need to do all of it. 
Anything short of treasuring the Word of God is to massively undermine it. Third, repentant when confronted with sin. When Saul is confronted in chapter 13, he blames Samuel for not showing up on time. When he's confronted in chapter 15, he blames the people. They were the ones that wanted to bring the livestock. He's unwilling to own his sin. What about David? Well, David was by no means guiltless. (laughs) He impregnated a woman named Bathsheba who was married to a man named Uriah. Then David plotted to have Uriah killed. He drew the ire of God after he decided to number the people very late in life, showing the pride, his own pride and his own self-reliance. The difference between David and Saul was that David repented. David genuinely repented. David genuinely owned his sin, hated his sin, and repented of it. Psalm 51 records David's prayer of repentance. He says, For I know my transgressions, and they are always, always before me. Whew! My my pages got out of whack here. Um, I know my transgressions, they are always before me, and my sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned. Now I've always thought, if Uriah could hear that, you would think Uriah would hear David saying, against you and you only have I sinned. And Uriah would want to stand up and say, I, I, actually, I feel pretty sinned against. You had me murdered. You impregnated my wife. Think I was wronged here. Right? So how can David say it? How can the Bible herald it as good? Well, David wronged. Uriah, but he sinned against God. Going back to what Wesley said about the size of the sin and the size of God, if God is gigantic, then every sin is huge. Let me say it again. If God is gigantic, then every sin is huge. And as such, David knew he must repent and throw himself at the mercy of God. One of the biggest misunderstandings about Christians is that we are those who don't do wrong or who don't think we do wrong. But that's completely false. Not only are, are we those who do wrong, but one of our core beliefs is that we are those who've wronged God and we've got to have that reconciled. We are those who deserve His wrath and somehow we've got to deal with it. We believe that Christians and non-Christians do wrong. Let me say that again. We believe that Christians and non-Christians do wrong. The only difference, this is so key, the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that a Christian is one who has repented. A Christian has honestly looked at the glory of a gigantic God, looked at his own sin, and owned it. Repentance is at the heart of the Christian life. Martin Luther wrote in his first of the 95 theses they nailed on the door there of Wittenberg. Do you remember the very first one? Uh, actually, I doubt we all remember the 95 theses. If you do, I'm very impressed. I sure don't. But uh, he says this, 
When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers be one of repentance. That you sin does not in any way constitute that you are an unbeliever. Let me say that again very clearly. That you sin does not in any way constitute that you are an unbeliever. Believers sin. Let me say this even clearer. Sometimes believers sin big. But that you sin and you don't repent is a sure sign of unbelief. Believers repent. Lastly, willing to embrace the love of God. Saul did nothing to deserve to be crowned king. He actually admits this in chapter 9 when he's going to be crowned. He, uh, he says, Am I not just a Benjamite, the least of the tribes of Israel? But he never could comprehend that God could love him and not need him. That is why he made rash vows. That's why he sought sacrifices that were not requested. Saul conceived of his relationship with God as one among equals. Therefore, he thought God's love was something to be earned. David, the beloved, was evermore the opposite. He knew from the start that God did not need him, but he was utterly convinced that God loved him. He knew God did not need him, and he was utterly convinced that God loved him. He saw God as so massive that it is absurd to think that he could ever earn the favor of God. No way I'm going to earn his favor. There's no way. That did not keep him from enjoying God's favor. One of my favorite stories of 1 Samuel. I love that book. In chapter 21, David and his men are on the run from Saul again. And uh, they're running from their lives. They're famished. They've got nothing to eat. Nobody will take them in because he's, I mean, he's, he's an outcast. Uh, he's a wanted man. Uh, and, and so his men are hungry. And they enter the city of Nob where the tabernacle in those days resided. And uh, he turns to God. Because he knows that God loves them and he'll provide. Here's how. He goes to the priest at the tabernacle, Ahimelech, and he says, we're starving. We're starving. Ahimelech says, well, David, I don't have any common bread, but I've got some holy bread. So remember on every Sabbath, every Sabbath, they bake 12 um, loaves of bread and uh, and then they take the hot bread every Sabbath and they stack it in two stacks, six each, and, and put them uh, on the, the the table. It's called the, the bread of presence. It's every loaf is symbolizes a tribe of Israel and reminds them all week that God is present with them. This is why my wife could never have worked near the tabernacle. She'd have eaten all the bread um, and uh, and we'd have been in big trouble. Um, so... She doesn't have many ambitions to work near the tabernacle, so that works well. Um, anyway, uh, the bread is supposed to, that bread is considered holy bread. It's supposed to only be eaten by the priest. And, and a very interesting turn. Ahimelech, not David, Ahimelech says to David, have any of your men been with women? Uh, and in the last little while, he says, no, 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 we, not when we're out on our, um, endeavors. 
Uh, and, uh, and so Ahimelech doesn't even hesitate. He gives them the bread of presence, the holy bread, and they eat it. Literally, God fed David's men. By the Spirit of God, He gave the priest a, a peace about letting them eat this bread that was supposed to only be for the soldiers and, and I mean for the uh, for the priest and and one of the things that you know this is okay because Jesus and Matthew, Mark and Luke brings up this exact story and says this is what I'm talking about. This is a God who desires mercy much more than sacrifice. Why do I lay that before you? It is evidence that David knew God loved him. He didn't know how when he got to that tabernacle that God was going to take care of his men. But he knew that God would take care of him. As big as God was, that he could march out with a giant with a slingshot, he could march to a tabernacle full of nothing but holy bread and know that God was going to figure out a way to take care of him. When David was in need, he trusted God. He went straight to God. God took care of him. Friends, is this not an incredible picture of God? This gigantic, massive, perfect, holy God who needs nothing. He's so strong. He's so mighty. Wants to shower you with love. He don't want you to earn it. That's a ridiculous notion. He says, repent. Believe upon my son Jesus. Believe that he took the wrath for your sin and enjoy my love. He has given us Christ to save us from his sins. Bad news. You cannot even come close to earning the favor of God. Great news. For those who believe in his son, he loves you right this minute more than you can ever imagine. And you cannot earn that favor. That is great news. Believe in a gigantic God. Fully obey the Word of God. Repent when confronted with sin. And willingly embrace the love of God.